This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, play script, director. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This series of seminars that the Wing provides for you are just part of the Wing's all-year-round programs. Uh, we have a hospital program, a program that brings live professional theatre into hospitals, nursing homes, and aid centers. And we bring this through the year they came, these programs came out of the Wings School. The seminars are a special part of it. Uh, right after the Second World War, the Wing had a school in which returning veterans were able to come in and retool their trade. What they learned, they took to hospitals, and that provided an audience for them. These seminars do the same thing. We are retooling the, the trade, the the knowledge of professionals in order to give it to the people in the business of working in the theater. The Wing is perhaps best known for its Tony Awards. And although they are coveted and they are a very important part of the industry, they are a wonderful award because they were not created for a commercial or an economic value. They were created in honor of a woman named Antoinette Perry, and she believed very strongly that people should be prepared in the theater. They should know every part of the theater. And so the reward is given to those who have achieved a degree of excellence in the theater, not for a review or not for the longest run. We're very proud of it, and annually it is shown over CBS television, and it goes out across the country so that everybody sees how wonderful live theater is and how wonderful New York City is that brings this live theater to you. Our other programs are multiple, and every one of them is supporting the theater and supporting the community through the theater. We support Saturday Theater for Children, which brings live theater into the schools in their own neighborhoods. We have a program called Introduction to Broadway. And that program brings high school students into Broadway shows. And it is in connection and done with the cooperation of the New York Board of Education and the wonderful producers who have given us tickets that we in turn are able to give to the students. Thousands and thousands of tickets have been distributed in the short time that this program has been in effect. 
Another part of the program which is very important and a plus is that we see that the students meet with the cast and with the crew and ask questions after the show. It does two things. It opens their minds to what it is to work in the theater, but it also gives them role models and another place for them to look for when they come out of school. And so before I take up any more of your time, I'm going to turn this seminar over to our co-chairman. And I also forgot to say that I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theatre Wing, which brings you these seminars. But our co-chairman today on the seminar on the play script director is Brendan Gill, who is an author and a critic, New Yorker magazine, longtime man there, and believes in tradition as, as the American Theatre Wing does. And he's also a member of the Board of Directors of the American Theatre Wing. And George White is president of the Eugene O'Neill Center and is internationally known. He is directed in all parts of the country and is at Yale. And he is a splendid person, and I'm delighted to have them on this seminar. And they, in turn, will introduce this wonderful panel to you, Brendan, Gill, and George White. Farthest from me on the right is the playwright Tony Kushner, whose play uh, Angels in America is now playing here. Uh, next to Tony is, is uh, Tim Mason, whose play Fiery Furnace is also on at the Lucille Hotel Theater. And closest to me uh, is uh, Jonathan Tolans, whose first play on Broadway is The Twilight of the Golds. Thank you. <clears throat> on my uh, far left is... Uh, a chair inhabited by a large white rabbit. We'll hear more about that later. Uh, um, and uh, next to Harvey is uh, um, uh, is Joyce Kate, who is uh, uh, Tony Kushner's representative and uh, heads the agency, represents the agency of the same name. Uh, next to her is... Uh, uh, the famous playwright and director Edward Albee, who I may also say, which is not on any uh, cards here, uh, could easily be called the conscience of the theater. And I say that with a great deal of affection and, and <laughs> praise. And next to, uh, right next to me, is uh, the distinguished director, uh, also of, uh, at the moment, of uh, Twilight of the Golds, uh, and the, also the director of the Long Wharf Theater, Mr. Arvin Brown, who is also an international director. In our panel yesterday, what was interesting, uh, which consisted mainly of, of actors, what was interesting is that so many of the actors present were also either uh, very busy being directors or eager to be directors. And, and this may well be a, an ancient tradition in the theater, but, but today we also have the question of playwrights and, and whether they also wish in their hearts in many cases, or in most cases, to be directors. Some do and some don't, evidently. Tony, to begin with, you as a person who is able to be both author and director, uh, is that the most natural thing in the world? Well, it's something that I um, started doing. I was trained as a director, and, and um, directing is something that I've come to miss a lot because I've spent most of the last five or six years writing. Um, 
it's something that I, th I mean, I think that there's a sort of a, a prejudice about playwrights directing their own work that, that is not, um, I think, ultimately valid. I think that playwrights can sometimes be wonderful directors of their own work. I think it can be difficult if your work is still in process to be um, alone with it, with a cast. And um, I also think that, that just uh, on a purely technical level, um, directing takes a great deal of time. And so does playwriting. And I think that, that what I'm having trouble with is figuring out how to spend enough time writing um, and to sort of ease myself back into directing because that's, I think that it's hard to do both in one lifetime. Um, and uh, so that's, that's a concern. But it is something that I miss, and it's something that I, I think in the next couple of plays, I'd like to, one of them I'd like to take mm -hmm. back and do it by myself. So. And what has been your experience in respect to that? I've been directed by an awful lot of really good directors uh, uh, over the years. Uh, but something occurred to me a long time ago, that when I write a play, I, I see it and I hear it as I write it, as a performed piece on stage. <coughs> I, don't, I don't write it in some kind of uh, uh, ephemeral reality. I see it being performed on stage. And, and I keep that vision with me. And it occurred to me that if I could learn the craft of being a director, the one thing that I could give an audience, which not, not necessarily the thing they want, but the one thing I could give them is a very accurate representation of the play that I saw and I heard while I was writing it. You know, very, very accurate, if, if nothing else. Uh, and that's why I started uh, directing my own work. Mm -hmm. uh, to pick up on that just a moment, mm -hmm. um, you said to learn the craft of a director, um, Obviously, you weren't trained as a director. How did you do it? Well, Just by doing. Not a writer either. But. Well, okay, okay. Fair. That's well, an interesting point too, yeah. which you get back to. But, but uh, it it never occurred to me that there was any craft involved in directing when I started out, uh, and so I started directing my own work, knowing nothing about directing. And fortunately, the first play I, of mine I ever directed was a production of the Zoo Story, deep in the foothills of Pennsylvania. Fortunately, because <laughs> it was without question the worst production of any play of mine I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I, except possibly Lolita on Broadway. Um, <laughs> and then it occurred to me maybe that, that maybe there was some craft. I, the, the, that production of the zoo story made it quite clear that, that the director, who happened to be me, the author, had no idea what the play was about. <laughs> or, or if I did have any idea what the play was about, I had absolutely no way to communicate with the actors. And so maybe I thought I should start learning the craft of being a director. And fortunately, there were a lot of good directors around who were directing my plays around the world. And so I sort of took a course by, by sitting in with Alan Schneider direct, directing in New York and Peter Hall uh, directing in London and Bergman, Ingmar Bergman directing in Sweden and Zeffirelli in Italy and Barrault in, in, in France. I went and I sat in on productions of my plays that they were directing very quietly, mouse, mouse time. And I began to learn something about the craft of being a director. And I don't know whether I'm a very good director or not, but I do know that I'm very accurate to my intention as an author. <laughs> In the 19th century, there were no directors, evidently. You know, uh, somebody said yesterday, the, the well, there were no critics either, star, Brandon. he wanted to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, the, the, the chief thing was that the star of a play, like a Henry Irving or somebody like that, or Forrest or, or Edwin Booth, he just wanted other people to keep out of his way. Uh, he, and he ran the show, and he, he did all the timing of himself. 
And uh, the temptation uh, then grew up to have this taken away from him, and quite rightly so, <laughs> because somebody else has a better judgment of how a star ought to behave. And we had all those star turns at that time. Not, nobody talked about ensemble acting then. But what do you think is the chief characteristic of a director in this respect, Arvin? Well, I, I'm totally a collaborative animal. So um, I love the kind of give and take between the, the director and the writer. I mean, Jonathan and I have just come through a, a wonderful experience, I think. Um, I began actually as a writer. So, in a sense, uh, those are the only tools originally that I brought to directing. I'd never, I knew nothing of ba backstage life. I didn't come from the theater. Um, I always thought I was going to be a writer, and I had a sense of language and a sense of why words were used the way they were. Um, nobody ever had to tell me about subtext because, again, it was something I'd experienced personally in, in writing short fiction. Uh, and yet what I had discovered in my own life was that there was a kind of nudity involved in writing that I couldn't take. I mean, that, that moment of looking at that blank piece of paper in that little room was just terrifying to me. And so when I found directing, I, I felt that it could incorporate many of the things that attracted me to writing, the, the creation of a, a world. Um, but it was a world that was just one step removed, at one step removed from me, so that I could function within it in another kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, Jonathan, picking up on, uh, on what Arvin said, how, uh, how about your interaction with your director? Um, I'm sorry, I was still thinking about when there were no critics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I actually... Um, I, it was interesting when you were talking about... I have also directed uh, a number of shows, but I sort of for now decided for myself that I preferred not to direct uh, my own plays for the very reason uh, why Mr. Albee likes to. I find that if I'm directing a play of my own, I do it exactly as I pictured it, and then I find that there, there, may, there, there is probably a lot there that can be found by someone who doesn't have that uh, idea going into it. And uh, with Arvin, um, it, w it was a very pleasurable experience because Ar what makes Arvin so good as a director and makes it such a positive uh, and rewarding time is that he doesn't tell you how to rewrite your play. Arvin just keeps pointing things out to you and inspiring you. And he says, you know, you bring up this theme here, and it, where does it go? And you go, oh, yeah, I'll be back in a half hour. You know? <laughs> and you, um, so for me, I, uh, at least for now, I really like having someone who can come and look at my work and uh, find out what happens between the two of us. In the old days, uh, of course, in musicals and everything like that, where it's much more collaborative that way, but uh, one of our most distinguished playwrights in the 30s, S.N. Berman, in, 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 uh, in uh, previews, would be running up and down the aisle asking people's advice about what he should do. And it was an extraordinary thing to see this distinguished person really begging for help from I don't think strangers. it had happened in the 90s too, <laughs> Brendan. I don't you. think you have to beg anymore. I think people are much more willing to give it to you. Right <laughs> uh, Tim, do you accept free advice from audiences and previews? Or what do you do? Well, you have no choice but to listen to it. Yeah. I mean, because everybody's pretty eager to offer it. Mm -hmm. um, I think Romulus Linney said once that, you know, the basic human desires are food, sex, and to rewrite other people's plays. <laughs> <laughs> and it's out there. I, I've, I've, 
always had a, I think, a morbid fear of being in charge. I've never directed, and, and I never will. I mean, never is a long, long time, but um, even as a child, I think I, there are different modes of communication. And I think perhaps in retrospect, I, one of the reasons I began to write was my profound distrust of conversation. <laughs> and uh, I could write, but I couldn't speak to a, a friend with assurance that I would be understood. Directors can, can communicate. A good director knows how to communicate to an actor. And uh, over the years, I've learned just to sit back and, and, and watch them work and, and bite my tongue when I think they're going wrong. Mm -hmm. And even to curl up on a sofa at the back of the rehearsal room and fall asleep. It's comforting. <laughs> Their voices are going on. And in time, well, uh, The Fiery Furnace was directed by a large white rabbit who is <laughs> not here, a wonderful director of the American theater named Norman Rene. And uh, when, you f when a playwright finds a director that he or she can trust, it's, it's a joy, and they bring things to the play that, uh, that I hadn't seen. Playwrights may, however, find a director taking the play in a direction very different from what he, he himself thought he had intended. So then what happens? You do continue to fall asleep in the back? Well, the no. If, you've, if it's going in a direction very much different from, uh. from the author's intent, no, then, then, then you do have to resort to other means of communication, you and the director. Because I think all of them, your reputation is that of being extremely sympathetic to the purposes of the, uh, of the author, dead or alive, because you've done, directed so many plays of great dead playwrights, and you've <laughs> taken care to make sure that that was as nearly as possible the play that you think they had in mind. I think, again, I, that comes from my own writing background. The text matters a, a great deal to me, and I learned early on that, you know, words were not used accidentally, which doesn't mean at times that they shouldn't be changed or developed or whatever, but I've never been of the school that sees a play as a kind of scenario for excess of one kind or another. Um, I don't believe in it. I don't particularly respond to it when I see it in the theater. Um, I think the word is very exciting. I think it is at the foundation of what um, moves me in the theater experience and has made me want to really devote my life to it. And uh, I think it has to be, the word has to be treated with a certain respect. Marvin, I can't help but break in here. You've talked about your background as a writer quite frequently. What, what is your background? Give us just a little bit. Go back. Uh, well, I went, to, I went to Stanford as an undergraduate, Stanford University, and was lucky and unlucky to be a part of one of only two writing workshops in the country at that time. And this was an extraordinary workshop. It was led by a man named Wallace Stegner, a great novelist who died uh, just a year or so ago. Uh, but my year that I was there as a, a senior in college, I was accepted into this workshop, and it was being taught that particular year since Stegner was on sabbatical by um, Malcolm Cowley, the, the great editor, and Frank O'Connor, the great Irish short story writer. And that was pretty heady company. And uh, I was the only student, and all around me, there were six other writers in this seminar, and they were all very high-powered professional writers, including uh, Ken Kesey, who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in this seminar, and uh, um, Larry McMurtry, and it was quite a group. And trying to keep up with them was at first exhilarating, and ultimately, for me, it was trying to balance a student load at the same time, very defeating. Uh, and I ended my time at Stanford and went abroad to study for a year, feeling very disenchanted with my own writing and wondering whether I would ever be good enough because I had reason to have very high standards. 
and uh, until I discovered directing, really doubted that I would, in fact, um, be able to function in in an art form at that point at all. Uh, one one other thing, I, I wanted to um, bring the discussion over to, to Joyce a minute because there is the um, the marriage broker, perhaps sometimes I was between. How I was fit in well, that's how. <laughs> that's how. Uh, do you indeed, um, <laughs> since you represent playwrights, uh, do you also well? I what, directors also. So and yeah. doing that, do you? Uh, how do you marry the two if that's necessary? Do you, or do they come with the director, or how does that, or does it change depend on the property? It and the really depends on the property. Um, in representing both. It's a little frightening representing both a director and a, and a playwright on the same project. Um, you can get into a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, you don't want to take sides, and really what you should do is take sides as an agent. You should really be behind your client when you have both of them working with each other, and then there's a problem. You have a problem. So that's a little sketchy. Um, putting playwrights with directors some playwrights really like a lot of input they like you know what do you think what director do you think would be good some don't some feel that they know exactly what they want and that's what they do um, I sort of take the cue from my client where I'm going to go with this whether they want me to be part of it or not uh, the, the hard thing is when I have a client who wants to direct his own work and I'm not sure that's the right thing. Um, especially with a young playwright or a new playwright whose play could use another voice, another thought in, this, in the process. Um, I think the beauty of, of theater is the collaboration. And so the collaboration not only with the director and playwright but with designers and all of it, it becomes this gem that everyone's worked on. Sometimes when it's a playwright directing his own work, there's a facet that's missing. How did Not you, how did you um, I mean, there are two parts of this now. How did you become an agent? What, what's your background? And two, what do you look for in a director vis-a-vis -a, -vis a playwright? What do I look for? In, in, in a director vis-a-vis -a, -vis a particular playwright, if you're asked to try to put something together. Um, okay, if a play is a language play, a play that has wonderful language, um, which is the kind of play that I love, <laughs> um, then you need, a, you need a director who will, who is, is good with character and the language and the respect for the play. Sometimes plays need a visual sense that's really important. So you look for a director that has those qualities, but also a really incredible visual sense that can bring um, I'm thinking of a particular play that has is a wonderful play that's going to be done in, in Seattle that really needed a director that had a, a real sense of what the thing should look like. And it took a while to find, and I hope we found the right one. <laughs> no playwright could ever appear here would ever write anything except what you call a language play. Well, some are... Some are language in a different way um, I guess yeah you're right but in the visual sense uh, I was thinking only 
Maybe that's true for murder mysteries or something like that. <laughs> You'd have a great visual sense if you were directing Sleuth or something. But other well, than that, it must a, be... The particular play that I was thinking of is a play that, ha that deals with um, a photographer. Um, it's kind of loosely based on the life of Diane Arbus. Mm -hmm. So it needs a kind of visual that maybe another play would need less of to bring it out. In history, are there famous rambunctious fights between... Now, Lillian Hellman, for example, always wrote a complete play, as, as Edward does. She, she, every word of it was in place when she finished her script of that. Yeah, but and, she would do four or five drafts before she permitted it to be shown to everybody. Mm -hmm. And then, so having got that done, uh, I, I didn't know whether she'd had bad luck or had big fights with her directors or not, because... Well, she was, was so easy to get along with, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, <laughs> But uh, other playwrights notoriously have uh, have to be coached into uh, another person has been very difficult in the old days at least uh, it was uh, Arthur Miller who always had very strong ideas about what his play should be like and uh, led to a lot of uh, excitement uh, much more flexible though than, than Lillian was interestingly mm -hmm. enough or at least more excited I don't know about more flexible in terms of maybe a director's input but I think more genuinely enthusiastic about the possibilities of rewriting mm -hmm. uh, never quite feeling that anything was finished you know there's a, a great Lillian Hellman story that from a production uh, that I did some years ago of Watch on the Rhine on Broadway and the cast was very very fond of Lillian actually this had been unlike what all the stories we'd heard uh, a remarkably happy experience and she was uh, leaving to go to California and the cast decided to give her a party across the street at a restaurant and the, one of the actors sort of spearheaded the whole thing and collected the funds to buy a cake and there was a lot of discussion about what to write on the top of the cake and finally they decided simpler was better and so they decided on watch on the Rhine and the date whatever the date was 80, 1985 or whatever and just five minutes before Lillian was to arrive escorted into the restaurant they opened the box and looked at the cake, and neatly written across the top of the cake was Witch on the Rhine. That was what you would call a language cake. <laughs> In the seminar on, on, uh, on performance, there was a, a, a great deal of discussion that was opened up on the role of the audience to the actor, and it was started by Stephen Spinella and, and Joe, on uh, Angels in America, on the different audience that they had on Saturday night to the audience that they had uh, in August and in, in July, that there was a difference in audiences, and it told the actor something and how the actor reacted to it. What does the audience tell you, you director? Let's start with director, because you're the one that is the last person to hear the audience, I guess. Uh, your words go back to the playwright, but what does an audience tell you? How do you react to that? I think gauging audiences, this is a very personal reaction, is, is one of the hardest aspects of my job. I, I, the rehearsal experience for me is so profound, and the collaboration when it's going well with actors and writer, and designers for that matter, is so exciting. It's hard sometimes not to feel terribly vulnerable to the audience response. and. Uh, I know years ago when I would talk to someone like Mike Nichols about his extraordinary 
ability to gauge an audience in very commercial terms, realizing that that laugh isn't happening exactly the way he wants it to happen, therefore he will build to it in a different way. This, you know, I mean, that, that kind of structuring in relation to an audience response is a kind of remarkable gift, which is just not sort of part of, of my arsenal. I, I get a very general sense of an audience. I certainly understand when we have them, when we don't have them, when they're attentive, when they're hooked. Um, I worry sometimes when the laughs are big of, as to whether we'll make the transition into the substance of the piece. Um, and there are always individual people in any audience whose opinions I crave. Uh, but as far as really having a great blanket sense of where the work goes from audience reaction, it's, it's, it's hard for me. But isn't that the whole purpose of the play is to bring it to the audience? Mm -hmm. Or shouldn't they be one of the most important ingredients for you? I think that's true. And I, I, I sometimes wish I were more involved uh, than sometimes I am with the audience response. But as I say, I mean, I watch... Uh, in a, we've just come through a preview period in, in which I saw a sh at least one show every day. Uh, and I gauge the differences in audiences. And I am I, I'm, I'm involved with it. Um, and I've had to fight my own vulnerabilities and conquer them as far as wanting to shut myself away from an audience response and just put myself out there. I mean, this is just, after all, every director, I think, has to find certain things that are more difficult for him to do than others, and those are the ones that have to be worked on. So for years, I've worked on this. I just don't find myself able to, to structure very specifically on a moment-to-moment -moment basis in terms of audience response. I find too many variables, too many different ways that an audience can be affected by outside circumstance that might have nothing whatsoever to do with uh, what's happening on the stage. You bring up a very tricky matter, very tricky matter about uh, the importance uh, of, of audiences' response and judgment. Uh, we all know that no two audiences are the same. One night you have an audience of bright, informed, alive people. The next night it can be the night of the living dead. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we all know about this. But judging a play by the way an audience responds to it is not necessarily a valid judgment. Uh, a preview audience that has not been told how to think by critics, for example, uh, is usually a much more objective audience. But, ha but having said that, uh, is the function of, of any art to please the, uh, the majority audience? I don't think so. I, I, I think not. I've seen too many plays that have been tried out before too many audiences, and all of the important, tough, rough edges have been sanded away. I've seen too many plays being put in workshop and tried out before audiences where the play I found has lost all of its validity and been made safe because it pleases an audience. There's a great danger in paying too much attention to an audience. That, that's an interesting, that's um, it, very, very true. And, and uh, you know, since you've moved a lot of her barriers or horizons back, I mean, you, you've, going back, Zoo Story and Virginia Woolf was doing all of these things, and they, they've come into the, the sort of classics, but they've come... Um, not through an easy way of, of being... Uh, and I wanted to, picking up on that, go over to you, Tony, a little bit, because I know Angels had a long history um, of... And, and, and there's a couple of things when, I, when we talk about Angels that... that uh, one is the long history, which I wish you'd get into, about the evolution of that, and, and it's still evolving, as I know. 
um, even as we speak. Uh, and also, uh, I mean, that, that, that process, we talked about visual, too, because it's both a, a play of language, but it's incredibly uh, interesting visually, too. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how much of those visual concepts are yours and how much the directors, and how, you know, in other words, both of those things. So it's a big question, but let's start with the evolution of the of angels. Um, you know, I, I just just to add one little thing about audiences, though. I mean, I I, I uh, agree with Mr. Albee in in one sense, and then in another sense, I don't. I th I find in in at least the regional theaters in this country, which is where I've spent most of my time um, working, that the danger actually comes before people get in front of an audience, and that that the rough edges are mostly sanded off by diligent hands that are all over the script. Uh, dramaturgs and directors and assistant uh, associate artistic directors and you know people uh, who work at the theater sort of uh, making it into process theater product before it ever even gets a chance to get out in front of an audience and it, it is exciting to me I mean we're just I guess I'm feeling strong about this now because we, we've had two previews now of Perestroika and it's immensely long and complicated and uh, everybody's sort of going nuts but we had this audience on Saturday night that was this completely insane Saturday Night audience and I, all uh, sort of angel groupies, I think, and so they were just shrieking with laughter and it made the play go on forever and it made it feel like a four and a half hour long Benny Hill skit. It was sort of horrible. And I felt like um, the worst writer in the world afterwards and it was sort of suicidal all weekend. And then last night we had this sort of Tuesday night audience and they were these sort of serious, uh, you know, Tuesday night people. And, and they laughed, but they didn't laugh a whole lot and they listened and they were sort of there um, and they didn't like jump to their feet at the end and uh, shrieking and screaming, but they were they were a uh, respectful, intelligent audience. And the play just sort of opened up for everyone, and it was it was great. And I mean, of course, I love those people that were there on Saturday night, but I also sort of hate them. And and there's a struggle, <laughs> you know, that the, the actors and the director and the um, uh, it's a lively struggle, I think, to sort of fight with the audience. George uh, Wolf talks to the actors about not letting the audience take over the play, and I think that that's a great way mm -hmm. to look at it. Um, this play was written in, uh, Millennium Purchase was written in 1988, and I've been working on the second part since 1990, and uh, it was done for uh, a theater in San Francisco, the Eureka Theater, um, and then uh, primarily developed, though, uh, by Oscar Eustace at the Mark Taper Forum, Then it was done in London at the National Theater um, in uh, 1990, I guess, and then went to the Taper and then came here, and it's been through $150 billion workshops, but actually Oscar, who was the director that I developed the play with and, and who worked on it, is also, in my opinion, the best dramaturg in the United States and is tremendously respectful of writers' presses. So if we get somebody, maybe, Jonathan, you're talking about Arvin, I mean that, that there's a, a tremendous respect and not a sort of, you know, do this and do that and, and sort of um, fit the play into some pre-existing model. Um, so Oscar was tremendously helpful. Joyce actually is the first person to suggest uh, when we came to New York and I needed uh, to go with um, someone else directing it, Joyce had just seen Jelly's Last Jam and called up and suggested, she was the first person apparently that you jam some people were already thinking about it, but she was the first person to say to me, you should go see this musical, you should think about this guy, uh, George Wolfe directing it. And it was primarily because, even though the play is obviously very, very full of words, um, uh, maybe over full of words, uh, it, it needed, we all felt, after having seen it in four different venues, um, somebody who could really make it sort of move um, and, and fly. 
and we saw what George had done in jellies with a kind of um, magical uh, way with transitions and, and making the event dance. Um, Can in I a inter sense. interject something there? When I made the suggestion, a lot of people said, oh no, they'll never get along, you know? And I said, well, let's just put them in the room. I mean, this could be kind of wonderful or it could be really awful. <laughs> and it kind of worked. But if people had gone with what they thought, they thought of George and they thought of Tony and they thought, oh no, 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 we would never have gotten yeah. them together. And it's actually worked out. And, it, and they Was that the great. first time you met George? Yeah. Uh, the, the, um, I met him. He came to see the show in Los Angeles uh, uh, before. Did you have doubts about him? About George? Yes. Well, it's scary because simply because I didn't, uh, I mean, it, before I met him, I mean, I loved uh, Jellies and I thought it was wonderfully directed. Um, and I'd seen some of his other work, and I'd met him once for about 10 minutes after he saw Angels in Los Angeles. But when you haven't worked with a director before, it's a terrifying thought, because you don't know who this person that you're sort of buying into is going to become, and, uh, and, <laughs> and how you're going to get along, because it's inevitably, I think, with a playwright and a director, uh, um, a meeting of, of fairly strong personalities. And, I mean, it better be that, because if not, one person is going to wind up being flattened. Um, in the experience, that? well, it, it, it shouldn't be either one. But it, frequently, you see playwrights who just eat directors for breakfast, and you see directors who take playwrights and sort of, you know, um, completely uh, maul their plays. So I think it's better if it's two people that, who can, if necessary, like a good marriage, sort of fight and change and struggle, and it's equally uh, balanced. So it, um, I mean, it's it's been amazing working with George. He's a complete. How about the student. visual side of that too? That was the next. Um, well, I mean, the play comes with these sort of angels crashing through ceilings and stuff, so it sort of has that. I mean, there's certainly a, it's a sort of a healthy mixture, I think. Um, uh, none of the directors who have worked on it, uh, Jack McDonnell in London and George and Oscar um, and David Espinosa in San Francisco have really visited any kind of, I mean, the play doesn't want much scenery, so I think it's, it's a lucky play in that way. Another play that I wrote, Bright Room Called Day, needs scenery, but nobody's yet figured out what scenery it needs. So it's been problematic. I think that it... Um, was it presented in London as it is here? No, it's basically, well, they're about what, to open. The, what were the differences? Yeah. It's just, well, the Cottesloe Theater is, I think, the perfect theater space in the whole universe. I mean, it's just because it's, it's big enough to be epic, but it's very, very intimate mm -hmm. and sort of chamber theater. And Declan Donnellan is an amazing director. It's tremendously simple, and it feels just they're such completely different people. Uh, it's like night and day uh, 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 feeling to the production, so it's hard to describe mm -hmm. and dangerous to describe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Timothy, what, uh, uh, tell us about. Uh, did you know uh, Norman before you got into this? How did how did that go together? I knew Norman only through uh, the works of Craig Lucas and uh -huh. just socially to say hello to. And I was I was a little apprehensive because he's so damn funny and so fast and he thinks on his feet and. I always felt sort of stupid every time I'd met him before. Uh, and it was uh, the fact that he loved my play that, that, uh, that helped put me at ease. And, uh, and all of that uh, banter that he is capable of just went away during the rehearsal. And I, he was a very, very quiet man in the room. Very quiet, very slow-moving Almost as They're, quiet as now. Almost as quiet. <laughs> this is how quiet Norman is. Yeah. Uh, his patience with the actors was extraordinary to watch. I just, I'd never actually worked with somebody who very quietly went over two inches 
10, 20, 30 times. And the actors loved it. They would come off on break and go, you know, he's really good. <laughs> how did you meet him? Uh, was that put together with your agent, or how did that go together? It was put together through Circle Repertory, which is uh, uh, my sure. home company in, in New York. Right. Norman is a company uh, director. I'm a company playwright. Uh -huh. Arnold, when you were talking about the audience and, and your relationship with it, in your play, uh, one of the difficulties is to put together these opposite things. You, you have a lot of laughs. People are laughing. At the same time, essentially, there's anguish behind everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you can't do a kind of Mike Nichols building up a lot of Bob laugh stuff uh, when you know that the real direction of the play is, is, is other than. And those two things, I think, work extremely well in the play. But, Thank uh, you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, but, 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 but the, uh, the difficulty of managing that kind of thing, it's a perilous, perilous path. And yesterday, the actors were talking about one thing that, that they felt strongly about, the directors were involved with, and that is withholding and wait, waiting to give the audience the full impetus yes. of what they're... So part of the, the director's job is this act of withholding, knowing what they want to deliver at the very end. Yeah. So you, have, you have to hold back a lot and then let it out little by little. And of course, that's also the art of the playwright. But the director is able to control that, and he is certainly the person who can do it as perhaps the playwright not, might not be able to do it, might, might not know how to do that. One of the things that uh, Arvind did in rehearsal, which was getting me so excited at rehearsal that I just had to leave, I trusted him so much, was that uh, the play, Twilight, has, uh, begins with a, an extended scene where you're introduced to all these characters. It has a lot of humor, a lot of family situations, and establishes the relationships. And Arvin went through that script with the cast line by line and found the pain and found everything that comes later in the play that is planted in those lines. And so, Whereas originally some people had felt the play was very funny and then very sad, Arvin found that it's a funny and sad play. And I think that made all the difference uh, for us of, of how it played. And so it didn't become get that laugh. And if anything, the laughs became greater because they were rooted in something real, which I think is always the goal of doing any kind of play, comedy or not. Mm -hmm. And I was concerned when we first started that Jonathan might, in writing it, have had some, some sort of a different uh, feeling about that and be very anxious for uh, uh, a kind of humor that, that, that might not be rooted. And one of the early things that we discovered working together, which was great, was how very concerned he was that the people be real from the get-go and that, mm -hmm. that, that nothing was That's ever... That's more anguish in the play than laughs. Yeah. What, what was the evolution of that, of the play? Was it done in workshop in other places? Did no, it, how, did I... It just, um, Twilight is very interesting because it sort of came about in like sort of the old 1950s commercial way to do a Broadway show. I, I wrote, finished the show in March of 92 and then I gave it to some friends who of course hated it and then gradually got some people who read it and said this is really something. Uh, and I rented out a theater in Los Angeles, uh, the Matrix Theater, on a Monday night and got some actors together and a, and a friend to direct it. And uh, we did a reading and uh, filled the house, God knows how. And from that reading, uh, I got uh, a producer who had come to see it, who is here today, um, interested in doing it. And the Pasadena Playhouse was there, interested in doing it. And they worked out a deal. And the show was up in, I think, six months 
or less than six months. And I think that really was very good for this play because I think, as Tony was saying, I, I really feel that Twilight as a play had it gone through a, ver a very long workshop process because it's about issues that everybody gets so angry about and has such uh, clear ideas of how you should present these kind of things, if at all, now, that I think it would have been flattened out uh, tremendously had, because, especially because I didn't have any reputation to, or really enough strength to, to protect it probably that we would have lost all the things that are making everyone so uncomfortable and I, I'm very pleased that we got it in front of an audience right away and at that first preview in January uh, I think we all recognize well there is something here that is definitely touching an audience and it's just been the, the work has been to make the production as good as it can be to make the script as full as it can be without losing that kernel of dynamite or whatever it is that that is sitting there at the middle that's getting everyone so hot under the collar somebody must have asked you or begged you along the way not to uh, make a title of, of the serious play a pun actually no nobody that's no that. no i'm looking forward to there's going to be a german production apparently and i just can't oh wait to God. see it'll be golder <laughs> dammerung <which Yeah>. is... <laughs> <laughs> wonderful <laughs> did you go out of town for your previews? Did you get well, the, the play was first done in Pasadena, and that was before Arvin joined us. Uh, and they have a series where the show goes to Pasadena, uh, Poway, which is a city outside uh, San Diego, and Santa Barbara. And then we were dark for like two months as we uh, Arvin came on, and uh, we did some more work on the play. And we played the Kennedy Center in Washington, San Francisco, and Austin, Texas. Which was wonderful. It's this college town and this incredibly warm, loving audience, and I'll, I want to go back. <laughs> Timothy, what about the evolution of Fiery Furnace? Uh, the Fiery Furnace, I think, began about 15 years ago. Uh, I was living in Minneapolis and had a friend who uh, co-founded a shelter for battered women, one of the first in that city. And she'd come by my apartment and tell me stories from work and. She would sort of unwind, and <laughs> when she left, I would be like this, because the stories were truly horrific. I got permission to spend a night in the shelter, because I said, I've got to write about this. And that was a, that was a very rough night. And I came away from it knowing that I couldn't write about it, because I would be writing about an issue, and, uh, and I didn't want to write a TV movie of the week. So I let it go, and I let it go for a long time, about maybe 10 or 12 years. And uh, five years ago, a, a, a Wisconsin farm woman began speaking to me in my head. And, and it turned out not to be a play about the abuse of women, although that figures in it, but a play about women and, and the choices that uh, were offered to them in an earlier era. And I hope that audiences see that the choices, the range of choices, isn't that much different today. Uh, Edward, because of, of your stature uh, and experience in the, uh, in the theater, do you find it difficult, necessary? In other words, if you have a, a, a workshop somewhere, uh, I would think it, because of the attention, just because of your name, is it difficult to get away where you can really focus on it without a lot of other voices coming in and nattering at you? I will say something rather unpopular. I don't think any play should be presented, gone into rehearsal, produced until it is ready to be seen. Um, I think too many plays uh, are, are workshopped and tried out and, and, and do this be before they're ready. Uh, um, 
it's very difficult. I, I go as far afield as Vienna sometimes, Vienna, Austria. Well, my, my first plays were done in, uh, in, in Berlin, Germany. Uh, I go quite far afield. I go wherever anybody wants to do a play of mine. But I suppose people, people show up and, and, uh, if, if they want to and, and, and review them in Vienna uh, or, or Berlin. Or, um, <clears throat> I just had my last play, Fragments, uh, commissioned by a theater in Cincinnati. And um, Bill Henry of the New York, uh, of uh, the Time magazine, came out there, for heaven's sake, uh, which I thought was rather nice, uh, especially since uh, the review was more favorable than not. You know, <laughs> uh, had it not been, I probably wouldn't have been as happy. Uh, we all know our true feelings about critics. Any critic who likes our work is a good critic, and one that does not is, is a bad critic, right? Yes. Uh, uh, I'm saying critics can be both. Yes, it's amazing the way, the way you guys can be so bright one week, <laughs> and, then, and then a year later you can have lost your mind. Can you cast yourself, your mind back to 1958? Did you feel that way then? As you do now, that a play comes on that doesn't need to be analyzed and it doesn't be workshop and you, you just put it, you get it there and that's it and you, you well, let back, back, back in those days, that process wasn't going on. Back in those days, it was assumed that this play is ready to be produced. This is a good play. Let's not hope that we can fix it during rehearsals. Maybe musicals were done that way back even yeah, then. I don't know. Yeah. But plays, it was not assumed, we can fix this one. Let's go in rehearsal because we've got this, uh, this hopeless TV actress who's, who's out of work, for example. Uh, no, no, nobody's involved. <laughs> Good. Uh, we, know play, we know. Uh, plays were done because uh, somebody, the producer, the director, somebody thought that they were ready to be done. Now, it was my first work. The zoo story was done in, in Berlin, in German, even though I wrote it in New York in English. Uh, Richard Barr, uh, bless him, uh, I think we all miss him, those of us who care about the serious American theater, uh, wanted to do them in New York. Uh, a double bill of the zoo story and Beckett's Crap's last tape, as it had been done in German. Uh, <laughs> these were done in, uh, done in English. Um, they were done because, uh, I guess, because they were ready. Uh, uh, to be done. What, through the years, what's changed all that? The cost? That, that you have to have something almost perfect before you present it? Not perfect. Or? Safe, usually. Safe, all right. Well, no, safe. that's not the word to use. Yes, it's a lot closer than perfect. That's not the word to use. Yes, uh, it is. Unfortunately, it is. Uh, of course, the, 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 uh, I suppose the cost of theater production considering that it is so unreasonable, has increased more than, more than inflation has, I guess. We did the zoo story in Crap's Last Tape, 1960, on Off-Broadway for um, $4,000. We did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway in 1962 for $42,000. <laughs> you know, and, and the, the fact that that play would probably cost 800000 now to do, do in a revival... Uh, those kind of hideous expenses uh, make cowards uh, uh, out of people who are normally just knaves, you know. <laughs> As a playwright, and I'm going to go playwright and director, are you concerned with the cost of the production, that it's going to cost that much if you, if you have the staircase coming down on the right side instead of it coming down on the left or not using the staircase and therefore eliminating to, uh, to uh, union members? Uh, in, in theory, uh, I, I, I hold to the, to the premise that any play that cannot be done uh, with one 
naked light bulb and a couple of chairs probably has something slightly wrong with it. Uh, I, I hold to that premise. Uh, I can imagine seeing Beckett, Chekhov, and other, and other playwrights I greatly admire done in, in, in minimal circumstances. But uh, that, that's theory. But uh, <laughs> my plays tend to have small casts. It's probably not the limitation of the stage, much as it is the limitation of my mind. I don't know what to do with, a, <laughs> with 18 characters wandering around. You know, I'd, I'd be ha happier dealing with three or four uh, uh, that I could handle, you know, than we'll be tripping all over each other. Um, no, I, I don't think it in, in, in commercial terms, uh, uh, which is quite evident considering the popularity or unpopularity of some of my plays. Well, people want to go to the theater, and, and there's some something that's holding you back, that we don't have the audiences that we should. I came to CUNY this morning at uh, 9.30 or quarter to 10 down Broadway and past TDF, and there was a line, the entire block of people standing in line with umbrellas with the rain to get tickets at the one-third off price. Now, not everybody can stand in line, but it was certainly an example, and a very good one, of people need to go to the theater and want to go to the theater. So there has to be some reason for that high price of tickets that, that's keeping away. And we, we discuss this over and over. We discuss it on the production seminar, but uh, it has, I really, it's the first time I've brought it up into the playwright director well, You know, the, seminar, the cheapest seats in the house. I'm trying to find an answer. The cheapest this. seats in the house are standing room. <laughs> and you're standing behind somebody who's paid 50 or 60 bucks for a seat. And the great virtue of standing room is you can get out when you want to, you know, <laughs> without tripping over anybody. And when I started first going to the Broadway theater, when I was delivering telegrams for Western Union and, and really broke, uh, when I wasn't sneaking in, I, 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 there are many plays I, I don't know what the first act was like because I, <laughs> I got an intermission. But when I could afford a seat, the back row of the back balcony, which you hear better, than anywhere else, and, and a play is, is a hearing experience much more than a seeing experience if the play is, is, is really worthwhile. Uh, you hear better back there than anything else. These people who insist for, for cachet or whatever the reason is they've got to sit in the $65 seats, well... Um, but there's always a small group of that, but that, that's not who we're talking about, really. How do you feel about this? What, what kind of an audience do you want to develop so that there are more people to see your plays and your... Tony, you had two audiences. You had your Saturday night audience and you had your <laughs> Tuesday night audience. Apparently two different kinds of audiences, yeah. but the audiences are there. Yeah, I think they are. I mean, I'm a little nervous about the, the TKTS booth crowd and, and a certain um, kind of audience that still, I think, is clinging to uh, a mystique of what Broadway used to be and also, I mean, sort of uh, the kind of audiences that well, I won't, I won't name names, but there are certain imported musicals that I think attract these people by the thousands because it's a ticket to a Broadway show. And I think that there's a sort of um, uh, relationship to the kind of... Um, uh, glor I mean, it was what John Lahr actually said wonderfully in that um, essay that he wrote in The New Yorker in the Broadway issue last year, that it's a sort of a glorification of the individual ego that was what Broadway was at its best and that it's still a kind of... Um, uh, something that people are, are, are eager to participate in, even though it may at this point uh, be tarnished or even non-existent. I don't know. I mean, we've tried very hard in, in Angels to get um, 
discounted tickets available, and, and there are 800 seats in non-preview performances uh, a week that are at half price. And so, you know, we're trying to make it uh, cheaper. It's a tremendous conundrum because mm -hmm. the people that work on Broadway that get paid the money that makes the prices go up, I mean, Angels uh, at this point is costing well over $2 million. I don't know what the ultimate sticker is going to be. And that, of course, is, is horribly frightening. Um, but uh, um, the people that work in the theater are working tremendously hard, so one doesn't want to you know, deny Well, them. you've gone out of your way to make your Arvin? show available to downtown yeah. crowd and uptown yeah. crowd. And I, I sense something happening. I hope I'm right about this. I'd like to believe it's true anyway in terms of the audiences and what... Um, brings them into the theater no matter what the, the uh, ticket price and I think all three of the plays represented on that side of the of the table uh, really suggest that that they're all plays which while not written from an impulse of issues contain issues I mean they're extremely organic pieces but they all deal with issues and that we've gone through in this country obviously and are going through a very troubled time very important point. and I think when I first went into the theater American plays particularly that tended to think of themselves as being issue oriented in any way tended to be very intellectualized very awkward very much head plays um, and that thing that European writing so often found where the, the issues were, were issues of moment-to-moment of, of -moment living. I mean, people's lives were involved in whatever the political or sociological uh, concept was that was being discussed. Well, I think now in, in new waves of writing, we're getting close to that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because certain issues we can't deal with as abstractions. We have AIDS, we have the economic situation in this country, and we are deeply and dangerously affected by, by these issues every moment of our lives. And I'm beginning to sense plays now coming out which are able to make an organic attempt to grapple with these things. And audiences, and we've been experiencing this at Twilight of the Golds, and I suspect you guys have as well, who for the first time in my recent memory seem to have a hunger to address and have it live before them. Well, and have. We were going to have to. I'm sorry to interrupt this, but we're going to have to stop for just a minute, and then we'll be open to questions. And uh, it's, once again, it's, it's, it's not enough time even on this part. And I have to make this point: we're with playwright, director, actors all here, that there's not women represented, and I don't understand how that happened because uh, Antoinette Perry was a playwright, director, and actor as well, and the whole Tony Awards come out of that concept. So we have not forgotten that. It's just that at this particular mix, there is not a woman playwright or director. Having said that, take time to just stand up and stretch and come right back again, and we'll continue with this discussion. We're continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, which are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This seminar is on the playwright director, and as always, we have Brendan Gill and George White as our co-moderators. And without further ado, we'll get right back to what is the role of the playwright, the director, and why are so many actors and playwright directors turned to directing? And vice versa. <laughs> one, one thing I'd like to uh, just 
quickly make a, a comment. Uh, there seems to be an, uh, much more. We, we, we did, before the break, got into the business about um, how people uh, were... Uh, the, Arvin was talking about a change, and, and I think there is. I think not since uh, uh, Edward Albee's uh, Virginia Woolf in 1962, uh, in the long arc of over, over 30 years, two angels uh, in America, has there been this kind of beginning again of attention to serious uh, plays, uh, non-musicals, that is beginning to <laughs> hopefully evolve again in, in the American theater. I think that's, that's very ex exciting. One thing that also has come up is uh, there have been um, banding about of terms like dramaturg. Um, and uh, I, there's been some question about what is a dramaturg, and I'd like some people to talk about that. I can only tell you that uh, it started for me uh, as uh, someone who related uh, to a literary manager in the Berliner Ensemble with uh, Bertel Brecht, uh, and there's a distinguished critic for The New Yorker, Brendan's uh, colleague, Edith Oliver, once said, a dramaturg is like the old-fashioned washing machine. You know, you had a, a ringer and a crank on the side. I am the crank on the side. <laughs> Uh, uh, I'm not sure that's the exact, uh, 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 but uh, I know, uh, Arvin, you uh, have dramaturgs at the Long Wharf. You might just define for people How did that. they come into being? Well, we essentially have a literary department of the theater. Uh, in this case, there are two people working closely together who read scripts, write up reports on scripts, and then become involved in production on a new play to the extent, frankly, that they're wanted, which I think is the best mechanism. I mean, there are, there are director-writer relationships that are, that are so specific and so personal that the intrusion of a third force into that situation is just not helpful. I think it was uh, a European thing to begin with, wasn't it? All the same yeah, I think so. in yeah. Europe have dramaturgs. And you go to school to become a dramaturg, and yeah. then you are appointed for life in many cases. I it's, a very, it's a very tricky area, I find, in the rehearsal process. I mean, I love talking to a good literary mind about a piece before it goes into the rehearsal, possibly, and sometimes even as a kind of critiquing in, in the aftermath. But I remember I did a show. Yale uh, uh, trains dramaturgs as part of their, their drama school Program Which is brand and new now. I mean, that's in the last twenty years. Yeah, yeah. there never was such a thing. But when you direct, as I did several years ago, when I did a production of uh, *Our Wilderness* at Yale, I was assigned a dramaturg to work on the production. Someone I had never laid eyes on before, and he was unfortunately, as as Jonathan says in, in his play, a bit socially challenged. He wasn't a he wasn't a tremendously forthcoming fellow, and uh, it ended up in the rehearsal that we all spent our time trying to organize his social life and make him feel wanted <laughs> and find a function for him, you know, within the... And it was, it was exhausting, so I think... Um, but I think that the whole wave of dramaturgs now uh, seems to resemble most for me what I see in Hollywood, uh, which is called the development process or development hell, as everyone calls it. <laughs> Um, I think that the danger is, I think very often now, uh, playwrights will be assigned a dramaturg at a theater, and there's never any promise of a production. It isn't leading towards an actual production. It's just someone to work on the play, to lead it towards how they think it should go, but it doesn't go towards a production. And you, you may not end up with a better play. You may end up with a play that pleases this person who has a desk job. And so I think that can be a danger. Is that part of the, <coughs> the reason that... You cannot get the show on the road as quickly as you did in production before. When you talked about it, Mr. Alvey, when you said 
you had a play ready and you, you had a production ready and you went right into it. Well, I always get my plays produced uh, rather quickly after I write them. Uh, Without a lot of these yeah. things that are yes, going uh, on. Yes, but uh, sometimes not necessarily where I would want them. But, uh, you know, I, I do get them produced uh, shortly after I write them. Uh, there's nothing wrong with, with, with a dramaturg, I suppose, as long as it's not somebody with, a, uh, with an agenda or, or somebody who is trying to shape the, uh, the, 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 the politically correct aesthetic uh, of this particular regional theater. I think dramaturgs turn up much more in regional theaters uh, than they do anywhere else. As long as they're, as long as they're, they're not uh, limiting what happens in the theater, or, or as, as we said before, shaving off all the rough edges, uh, then they're okay. You know, it's nice to have somebody involved in the theater who can read and stuff like that. Well, I, I think well, we've we've used them. I know at the O'Neill Center uh, early on, and I I cooked up the I took I frankly stole the the, the term because the, we needed another pair of eyes and ears to sit with the playwright who was sympathetic who said I, I don't quite get that but it was a questioner not somebody with an agenda as you said uh, but uh, I do think uh, that's become perhaps an intrusive developmental. Uh, very much like uh, screenplays are developed now, and it's it's a scary thing rather than another pair of eyes and ears. And the whole uh, fact that the Yale Drama School has a department of dramaturgy is a rather frightening uh, aspect of things. I think. It's part of a bureaucracy. Everything becomes a bureaucracy, and one of the worst things about everything that ever took place in Europe in the arts or anything else was that they were bureaucracies over centuries. Yeah, that's and true. now that taint is entering almost everything we do in, 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 in the arts in this country, which is why everything takes so much longer to get done, as Isabel was saying. But, and people in their creative lives don't live that much longer, but they write fewer novels than they used to. People used to write a novel a year and things like yeah. that. And, and plays used to come out very rapidly one after the other when you think how many they were done. Of course, Carol Lutz writes 10 a year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those are the, the exception. Sure, Simonon wrote 300 novels, but he also was, that was rather weird. But, but, but it does get harder and harder to get the work out and, and, well, and the pressure. I think it should be discussed, too. Let the playwright continue playing and, and the director direct and, and without too many people in, in the pot. Wouldn't that make life a little bit simpler for the theater? Or do you feel that you want these extra hands? I think there are, two, there, there, there are sort of two questions. One is credentials. I mean, I know that for some of us, we've been making a lot of critic jokes and whatnot, even with the presence of our beloved Brendan here. But I think one of the things about... I think some of our objections, current contemporary objections about critic is, critics is exactly what are the credentials? What is the background? Why should we, why are we listening to this particular voice? And I think the same thing is true of dramaturgs. I mean, I think too often we really don't know what the credentials are. Um, and the second problem then is that like every other relationship in the theater, it's intensely personal. I keep coming back to that. I mean, it's, it's the meeting of the, a certain directorial and writing sensibility with a dramaturgical sensibility that can sometimes be extremely helpful and fruitful. And when it's an imposed relationship, it can be absolutely counterproductive and in some ways quite destructive. It's just a question of... Timothy, come on. I just won't come out against dramaturgy at all, but I know that I'm wary of it, having had a play dramaturged to death in, in a major regional theater, and not through any, you know, ill intention. The intentions were all wonderful, and by the end of the process, I was simply so confused, I lost the play, mm -hmm. and it's gone. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Now, it may be that it was a play that should have been lost, but I'll never know that. Yeah. Um, I've been fortunate to have Lanford Wilson, a, another playwright, as uh, my primary dramaturge, although we would never call it, you know, use that term. And in the, in, uh, the Fiery Furnace, Norman Renee, the director, was, for the want of a better word, the dramaturge. He was the director, though, which is, I believe, that's the director's job, is, is to uh, help the playwright uh, with his play. Yeah, but, not, yeah. It's like, like if God had a dramaturge, you know, I mean, would we have an armadillo or a horseshoe crab? There's something funny looking in what comes out of the subconscious. And, and if you neaten it up, you know, it's lost. I'm, I'm quickly learning that one of the most important tools a playwright must have is to be able to filter out the voices uh, that he or she should not listen to for a second. Um, and, that, and I think probably, you know, the only way to survive, and I'm trying to develop this very quickly right now, is, to be, is the, the ability to hold on to whatever sense of self and the, the sense of your own work, because uh, it's amazing how many voices you're going to hear the minute you put a play up on a stage and the curtain goes up. It's, it, it's just amazing. It's the danger of homogenization. No, you're, for, you're writing another play. Yes. That's the great yes. Wisdom By God, I am. But you're in the midst of it. You're in the midst of it. I mean, you're starting. Yeah, I actually haven't started writing the dialogue. I do a lot of note-taking, a lot of uh, just amassing material before I write the actual play. And we'll all be glad to help you with those. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me, you I brought copies for everyone. How do you start writing a play? Do you, Timothy, do you gather a lot of notes together and, and, and say, well, what is the method of writing a play? It, it, it's going to be four different stories here. Uh, uh, I, I tend to uh, hear someone speaking and then about a year and a half later start writing. writing Have you taken notes place. along the line? Um, very few. I used to when I was uh, younger. I, I kept a recipe card boxes full of notes and, and that was a wonderful way for me to work because uh, at that time and, and now it doesn't seem to be. Tony? Yeah. Um, I take Usually it's about uh, nine months, but sometimes a year and a half before I start writing. And um, I usually start with with um, a title and and some idea of of disconnected things that the play will be about. Uh, and then I start doing reading and research and thinking about it or interviewing. It's something that I've just started doing with something that I'm working on now. Um, and um, and I just sort of put it off as long as I possibly can until either uh, internal pressures or <laughs> Joyce or the theater <laughs> says, you have to start writing now. <laughs> and, then, and then I start writing. And then usually the first draft, um, which I'm beginning to uh, get very interested in the question, I mean, because I think that the issue of, of even voices that are tremendously smart and that you trust, um, people that you've worked with for years who are absolutely brilliant, can sometimes give you incredibly bad advice with the best intentions in the world. and um, I'm beginning to go back to first drafts of plays and look at them and say, you know, there's a lot. It's, it's sort of all there in a way. And if it wasn't there in that first draft, it's probably not there at all. That sounds like something from The Wizard of Oz. But it's, it's, um, it's true, I think. And I, you have to sort of hang on to that. You can't. It's like Walt Whitman rewriting Song of Myself 150 times. And every time he did it, he made it worse. And the first one is the, is the one. So um, that's. Uh, I think that's interesting. Could we hear from Mr. Alvin? Yeah, and I wanted to pick up because, Edward, you said you never, you know, in a sense, 
went to school for playwriting because I think that's an important thing too. I don't. I wonder how many of you ever took playwriting courses. Well, you did it. I don't think you did. Did you? No, you did. Well, but but I, I I guess I did, since I started reading and seeing plays when I was okay. Young, but I mean, I in, in college, you're taking a course no. of playwriting 101. She was asking about the creative process. Right. I discover that I have been thinking about a play. By, <laughs> by the time a play moves from the unconscious to my awareness of it, it's already begun uh, to exist, and then I let it develop. Uh, to the extent that it wants to until it wants to be written down. I, I write nothing down. I don't take notes. I won't write scenes down. I, I, I made an experiment once when I was writing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I was in the first act, so I write my plays from beginning to end, which is sometimes unusual, but I do. Uh, and I got an idea for something that I thought would be good in the third act, which, as you know, Virginia Woolf is a long way away from the first act. And so I wrote down about a four-page scene and I put it away and went back and finished the first act. A couple of months later, I got to act three, and I remembered that I'd written that scene. And I looked at it, and I liked it a lot. It was, it was really good writing. I tried to put it in the play. It wouldn't go. The characters would not say it. Because I'd written it down too damn soon. That's simply. We'll go to questions now, and I'm sure there are many that want to be asked of this distinguished panel. Would you like to start? Yes. My name is Raymond Bell, and I would like to address this to Mr. Albee. As a playwright who often directs his own works, when you see your work directed by someone else, do you see any relevant changes that might not have occurred to you in the beginning? I just mentioned that we write both from the unconscious and then the conscious mind. Uh, a good director, uh, including me sometimes, uh, can find in my work things that I was not consciously aware that I put there. A bad director will find things that I did not put there. Hi, my name is Mohammed, and any of the playwrights can answer this question. Have, uh, has any of the directors uh, uh, taken too much liberty with your work that you fail to recognize your work? I mean, it's hard to believe that you know you're not involved. But let's say you were out there doing some regional work, and you came back on the opening night and said, "Wait, no, I don't remember writing this play." <laughs> Uh, Timothy, I think you had something like that with the dramaturg, but did that happen vis-a-vis -vis the director too? Or no, it's, it's, that, that would be a very terrible story, that would, and yeah, I think a rare one. Um, Fortunately, yeah. the, the trick is to try to write a play, uh, actor-proof and director-proof, <laughs> critic-proof <laughs> critic and audience-proof, so that any director who really is merely a show-off and, 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 and nothing else will have a hard time screwing up your play. You, you try hard uh, to, to write so that it's difficult to do it. It's amazing how clever some people are sometimes. <laughs> I know that when I was very young, and much different to what I am today, the only people I ever have physically assaulted in my life were theater directors. <laughs> and now, I'm asleep at the back of the... <laughs> I'm docile. Yes, uh, Shirley Goldstein. Uh, to all playwrights, but I have to revise it a little for Mr. Albee because he answered it. Uh, now that you're established writers, do you ever run into any problems getting your work produced? And I would like to know, Mr. Albee, about your first work, if you had any problems, or were you already in theater when, when you got your first the work? The Zoo Story was my first play, and after I wrote it, I didn't know what to do. And so I showed it to a lot of theater people. I remember I showed it to Bill Inge, uh, who said, that's nice, and, and did nothing more about it. Uh, by a, 
strange set of circumstances. It had its first production in German in, in Berlin because a composer friend of mine had sent it to a teacher of his who lived in Florence, who'd sent it to a German-Swiss actor friend who translated it and sent it to somebody in Frankfurt, and so it ended up, it ended up uh, uh, in, in, in Berlin. Uh, so that, that was uh, circuitous, uh, but, not too, uh, but not too much of a problem. You know, the theater's a very hungry business. There aren't that many good plays around. And uh, it's not all that difficult, de depending upon where you go, to have your play received sympathetically. If your goal is, is, is only a 2,000-seat theater, then maybe you'll have some problems. There are a lot of, of good, sympathetic theaters uh, around this country. Uh, many of them uh, as far away from New York as you can get. Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is that, is that because the four of us are all white men, um, that it is the case even now with as many regional theaters as there are, although a lot of them are going bankrupt, um, that I think that for um, Latin American play, uh, you know, Latino playwrights, um, uh, African American playwrights, and women, it's still enormously difficult even for very, very good writers to get productions. And there's one playwright, uh, Maria Irene Fornes, who, in my opinion, is one of the great writers this country's produced, who, if you read The Voice last year, is, you know, is sometimes having trouble making an income. And it's so, it's, I think demographics has a lot to do with it. So. Hi, my name is Lily, and this is addressed to any of the playwrights. How does one get over writer's block? Mm. <laughs> well, uh, for me, I mean, I, sort of like what the other writers were saying is, uh, I don't write until there's something to write. Uh, I am not. I know there probably are some very disciplined playwrights who get up every morning and have a cup of coffee, or Tennessee Williams in his bathrobe who would write every morning for a few hours. I feel the writing is not the hard part. It's having something worth writing <laughs> that's, that's difficult. So really, it, it's just developing a gestation period. And I keep busy sort of doing other things that provide an income uh, while, you know, in between the, the times when I'm ready to, to have a play. I always have two or three plays <laughs> in my head, uh, which I think contain ideas and should be written down. Uh, I like to think that if I stop having ideas for plays, I'll stop writing. But considering the popularity uh, of plays that contain no ideas, maybe I'll start. <laughs> being, maybe, maybe I'll start being popular. Would you like? It? Yes. Hi, my name is Dean Fortunato. I'd like to address this to, to Mr. Albi. Where do you think Broadway will be in 20 or 30 years from now? Do you think the musical um, will take over? Or do you think we'll get back to dramas and plays more, more of? Well, the sooner we realize that Broadway, what we call Broadway, has less and less to do uh, with uh, American theater and has much more to do with, with, with commerce, expense account, and all the rest, the sooner we realize that, we won't ask that question anymore. Uh, Broadway is almost an anachronism. There are very, 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 very few, maybe one a year, good, serious American plays which are permitted to toler uh, to tolerated. Uh, and permitted to exist uh, in what we call Broadway. The really serious American theater is off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, regional theaters, and university theaters. Uh, maybe Broadway can come back and, and, and become useful and become necessary. And now it is fundamentally, for anybody who cares about the serious American theater, it has become 
uh, for a variety of reasons, almost exclusively a waste of time. So don't worry too much about it. <laughs> I have to ask a question there. That you care about theater, and therefore don't you want to sustain a magic that has gone on for a long time? And we've asked this question over and over again on the seminars. Why Broadway? If Broadway has become what everyone has said, it's become just a big commercial blob, then why does everybody want to be on Broadway? And the answer's always been because that's where everybody is coming. And, and you talk about the theater in Europe and it talks about Broadway. No matter where you go, direct from Broadway across the country are the words. Why, why won't you or why wouldn't you want to sustain that? I think it would be very, look, we, we all like to be very popular. We all like to make a lot of money. Uh, we all like to have our plays seen as, by as many people as we possibly can. The important thing is to be able to do it on our own terms. If we can do it on our own terms, super. Uh, Tony's capable of doing it now. Uh, one or two uh, playwrights uh, can accomplish this. But generally speaking, the compromises uh, that are demanded uh, by Broadway for a variety of reasons uh, don't make it a, a healthy environment for, for serious drama. They're, they're a great, great place for, uh, for commerce, uh, for the theater owners, uh, for advertisers, for the New York Times and its advertising section, and, and a few other places, but it's, it's, it's not a healthy home. Uh, but, Arvin, you were striking an optimistic note yeah. about the possibilities of a recovery of this feeling for serious plays on Broadway. Yes, well, I was, I was thinking a little bit more generally than Broadway. I mean, I think it will and possibly can, as judging from the playwrights represented here today, affect Broadway. But, I, you know, I think one of, the, um, one of the factors that doesn't get discussed often enough on this particular subject is the fact that with the proliferation of theaters on the regional scene, which has now been accounted for the last 25, 28, 30 years of my life, there is a remarkably educated audience out there. And the New York audience, by and large, has fallen behind that, in my experience, that educational level. I'm talking about theatrical educational level. Um, there is an audience that has been consistently exposed to a very wide-ranging spectrum of the literature that, by and large, the New York audience, uh, unless it works very, very hard to seek it out, has not been exposed to. Um, I am sensing, and I hope I'm right, as I said, that there is, uh, there's beginning to be a visceral connection between audiences as I see them and uh, issues that are presented in, in terms of plays. Um, but even that, I, I suspect, is something I sense more strongly when I work outside of New York than, some, than I sometimes feel it in New York. And I work both places all the time. Um, so I think that it's very interesting and very exciting for the potential of the theater, echoing what I think Edward has said, that there is a remarkable audience out there now that is not just exclusively located in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Washington. Jonathan mentioned our experience with Austin, Texas. Wonderfully intelligent, thoughtful audiences, interesting questions. I mean, I, this has been my experience around this. What is a New York audience? Can well, there's another... That? I think that's a very key question. I mean, I think that it's very hard to know uh, exactly who the audience is and what the audience is in New York. I mean, what's exciting for me about a New York audience is that it is exactly that. I mean, it is, in a sense, a national audience because you get, if you, if you have a play running in New York uh, through, over the course of a few months, 
every kind of person that lives in this country will come through the theater. I mean, at least one or two of every single kind of person. And I think um, it, it, it's a very exciting... I mean, I still am completely in love with New York, so I feel like, you know, it's Broadway is, is here. And I mean, what I'd like to see happen, actually, is to have the federal government buy um, several of these theaters, because one thing that is also not mentioned, and the thing that was a big draw for me, is that the theater buildings themselves are the most magnificent theaters, some of them. I mean, the booth is, is a masterpiece. And, and it's hard to say, well, I'm going to be an American playwright, and I'm never going to work in this house that has the Walter Kerr as a wonderful theater. Yeah. And you just don't want to give that up. You don't want them all to shut down or become Mooney churches or, um, or, or Andrew Lloyd Webber's latest you know, yeah. thing. I mean, they, they really are great spaces, and it would be lovely if there was some way for... Um, and I think federal subsidy would be the answer to create a kind of a national theater using these spaces because they're they're some of the greatest theaters in the Western world. And, um, so. One more question. I think that's all we need to ask for. My name is Greg, and this is a question for any of the panelists. Uh, before a play opens, uh, you may have a feeling that it's ready or that it's not ready. How often are these pre-opening instincts correct? We'll go down quickly. We haven't much time. I, I think you have to define correct. I mean, do you mean in terms of the critical response or how, you know, it's, it, it gets down to that value judgment of... Well, in terms of you thought it was ready and everyone else thought it was a bomb or you were surprised, you didn't think it was ready and then everyone liked it as opposed to, I guess, critical acclaim or the audience, it's either. You know, it's difficult to say. I mean, I think... Again, it goes back to that idea of, at least as a playwright, having to hold on to that inner voice of knowing when you've done your work and when you haven't. Uh, I mean, in terms of our experience on Twilight, the play was working incredibly well with a preview audience. And the reviews that came out were very mean-spirited. It wasn't, these were not technically, this, the play fails because of this, this, and this. They were just, we hate this. Um, <laughs> go away. Um, and so I still feel the play was ready, and I still feel it is ready, and uh, we're on at 2 and 8 later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Listen, don't say the play failed. Oh, no, you I don't mean that. You mean that the critical response uh, was not what you imagined. Don't assume that if a play... Actually, it is what Don't assume that if a play... <laughs> don't assume that if a play gets bad reviews, uh, it has failed necessarily. Absolutely. Thank you very much for being with us. This is the American Theatre Wing seminar on working in the theatre, and today's seminar was on the playwright director and the most extraordinary group of talented people have come here this morning. The seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I thank you all for being here. Thank you.
you know, have you a finger rick and an unmake eye aside, I'm not that sure.